We can turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 11. We're getting close to the end of this depressing book, and I don't know what I'm going to do next. Probably stuff that's more depressing. Uh, Maybe we'll do some um, continue in the exile theme, perhaps Ezra and Nehemiah. Maybe we'll talk about Job. I don't know. Uh, But we're coming to the end of this depressing but comforting book. And so we're going to look at verses 1 through 6 this evening. Uh, It's called Diligence in a Risk-Filled Life. And so verses 1 through 6 of Ecclesiastes 11. Cast your bread upon the waters, for you will find it after many days. Give a serving to seven and also to eight, for you do not know what evil will be on the earth. If the clouds are full of rain, they empty themselves upon the earth. And if trees fall, if a tree falls to the south or the north, in the place where the tree falls, there it shall lie. He who observes the wind will not sow, and he who regards the clouds will not reap. As you do not know what is the way of the wind, how the bones grow in the womb of her who is with child, so you do not know the works of God who makes everything. In the morning sow your seed, and in the evening do not withhold your hand, for you do not know which will prosper, either this or that, or whether both alike will be good. Amen. Let us pray. Lord, our God, we are thankful for the fact that we put our faith in the sovereign God over all things. And there is much perplexity, much difficulty, much evil that even befalls your people in this world, much adversity. But help us to remember that we do not know what evil will be on the earth. We do not know the way the wind goes. We do not know how bones grow in the womb. And we do not know the works of you. Uh, from beginning to end, but we're thankful, oh God, we can put our faith in you and trust in you, that you are God, and that you do all things right, and that you do all things well. You make everything beautiful in its time, and thank you for the assurance and promise of your people that you work all things for good to those who are called according to your purpose. So as we still deal with uh, difficulty, enigmas, perplexity in a difficult, fallen world, as we wrestle with inconsistency, oh God, we ask that you'd help us to put our faith and trust in you and help us in Christ. And because of his finished work, help us to be diligent, help us not to be lazy, but help us to be diligent in a world full of risk. So we ask oh God, you'd be with us tonight by your spirit, be with your people. We pray, give us illumination, be with your saints, save sinners and all things. We pray that you be glorified. We pray these things in the name of Christ. Amen. Well, there are many evidences that we live in a sin-cursed, fallen world. There are many sins that people deal with, many big sins that we typically like to hone in on, sexual immorality, fraud, tyranny. All these are signs of a fallen world. All these are signs of sin in this present evil age. But another sin that sometimes we neglect or perhaps don't like to harp on uh, is the sin of laziness or the sin of not being diligent with the time that God has given to us in this world. The reality is people are unwilling to work. People do not want to work hard. People want just things to be given to them. And certainly there are reasons for that. Number one, we're sinful. Solomon says in Proverbs 6, look at the ant, O sluggard. Look what he does. And he calls uh, wisdom is found in hard work. But perhaps there's another reason why we are lazy in this world, and this is perhaps a combining of enigmas and perplexity in the book of Ecclesiastes. Perhaps sometimes we are lazy, or perhaps sometimes we procrastinate 
because we are paralyzed by the risks that are, could come upon us in this world. There's a lot of calamity that could happen. There's a lot of difficulty that could occur. And so perhaps it paralyzes us and we overthink things in the present age in which we live. This is vanity and striving after wind. And remember, this book is all about vanity and striving after wind. And I think the book of Ecclesiastes, it's difficult to understand, but I think the main idea is uh, Solomon is teaching us to, to the realities uh, of an inconsistent world, how we wrestle uh, with those inconsistencies in this fallen world in which we live. And there are many things that are perplexing for us, and we must simply put our faith and trust in God in those times. What profit is there in all vanity under the sun? And the section perhaps we are still in is the section that seeks to answer the question, what is the value of wisdom? What is the value of wisdom versus foolishness? We asked that in chapter 9, verses 13 through 18. That continued in chapter 10 as well. Wisdom certainly is superior to foolishness. And remember, wisdom is taking the law of God, taking the things we learn and applying them rightly, applying them to the right path, applying them to the right way we ought to go. Folly is sin. Folly is applying it in a wrong way and going down the wrong path in this world. So wisdom is superior to folly, but the book just likes to break our hearts. How much more superior is wisdom than folly? And perhaps one of the enigmas about chapter 10 is perhaps the, it's not so much the comparison between wisdom and folly, but riches and folly. At the end of chapter 19, he says, but money answers everything. Riches are better than folly. And if money answers everything, it's best to pursue it, but there's going to be risks involved. And the problem that we see in this section is really twofold, a lazy, risky life. A life filled with risk. And what I mean by risk is that we do not know what's going to happen tomorrow. We really don't. We like to plan. We like to think we know what's going to happen tomorrow. But for the most part, we have no idea what is going to happen tomorrow. God says prosperity and adversity are from God. Uh, but the Bible says that both of those come from his hand in this world in which we live in. It may even seem like happenstance. might even seem like chance. But the preacher has told us often that we should know better. Solomon has told us often that we should know better in this world. So a life is filled with risk, but also sometimes we can be lazy in life. It is better to be a hardworking man with nothing than a rich man with everything. Hard work is a gift from God, and hopefully we see that as we go through. And so I do think in verses 1 through 6, the preacher teaches the importance of diligence in spite of risk. And the reason being, we do not know the future. That's been one repeated refrain throughout these verses. We don't know. We don't know. We don't know. We don't know. So we must be diligent in the life God has given to us because we don't know. And so we'll look at this idea of diligence in a risky world under two headings this evening. First of all, the risk of diligence, verses 1 through 4. Then secondly, the comfort of diligence in verses 5 and 6. So the risk of diligence, verses 1 through 4. And then the comfort of diligence in verses 5 and 6. So let's first look at the risk of diligence in verses 1 through 4. There's quite a few similitudes, quite a few illustrations here. And I must confess, I don't know that I 
really understand what is going on here. I've said that a lot in this book. I don't really know. And you read 10 commentaries and they say 10 different things about something. And verses one and two is very hard to grasp uh, the meaning of what's going on here. Uh, some think it refers to almsgiving. That is the idea that you cast what seems like is being dissolved. You cast your bread on water, it dissolves. It seems like it's going to be gone. Eventually it comes back to you. And so the older interpreters are certainly of this line of thinking. And that would mean verse two then is better to give when you don't, when you have, because you don't know when evil is going to come to you. That could be involved here. But another idea is the idea, perhaps it's a maritime image, a maritime illustration. What I mean by that is seafaring, enterprise by way of the sea. There is, uh, some, uh, there is similar language like this in Isaiah 18 to refer to the Ethiopians and their seafaring trade in that way. And it's possible that the idea of bread could signify the corn trade. And what's interesting is the book hasn't really talked about almsgiving all that much. It's talked about enjoying the life that we have. It's talked about enjoying one's portion that is given us to us by God. And obviously, we're not against being generous. We're not against being you know, cheerful givers. We're not against those types of things. But the indication or the context seems to refer to the idea of this maritime trade. And it goes back to that saying in verse 19, but money answers everything. And so if money answers everything, it is best to pursue it. And so what he says here then is cast your bread upon the waters that is engage in this enterprise best to pursue it, but it's going to, you're going to need patience and it's going to be risky. So cast your bread upon the waters and then for you will find it after many days, you may find a reward, you may receive it, but it's not going to be a get rich quick kind of scheme. It's going to require patience it's going to require waiting. It's going to require putting one's trust in God in this way. But it's also a risky business. So verse two, it's best to diversify. Give your serving to seven and also to eight. It's best to have many boats than perhaps just one. And the reason being verse two, you do not know what evil will be on the earth. So I think that perhaps is in view here. And certainly the idea of hard work is seen in verse six. Certainly it could be the idea of almsgiving, but I take that merit. I think the maritime one makes more sense because the question then is raised. Well, if we don't know what evil will be on the earth or what calamity will befall you, is money really everything? And remember Solomon himself was the one who was the richest person on the planet. And he is the one who is raising these questions. He is the one who's observing these things. In chapter two, he said, the pursuit of wealth is vanity, vanities, because you cannot take it with you. And so is money really, truly everything? And so he goes on to say, he goes on to illustrate then in verses three and four, further about risk. So diligence is good, you know, enterprise isn't a bad thing, but you do not know what evil will be on the earth. And unfortunately, there's just some things you can't change. Verse three, if the clouds are full of rain, they empty themselves upon the earth. And if a tree falls to the south or the north in the place where the tree falls, there it shall lie. There are just some things that we cannot change in this world, right? 
And I think the image of the clouds and of the tree is one and the same. It falls, that's where it lies. I mean, it's pretty clear to see what he's saying or to use modern parlance, it is what it is. Unfortunately, calamity happens and unfortunately adversity happens and we can't change it. Good things happen too and we cannot change it. But what he's trying to illustrate here for us is sometimes things just happen and you can't do anything about it. And the whole book has tried to teach us how little control we actually have in this, in, in this world. We have very little control over lives, do we not? We have little control over really where we were born, how we get to where we live. We might have some skills that we're good at, other skills we're not good at. We have very little control in this world. We don't like to confess that. We don't like to say that. But unfortunately, the Bible tells us God is in control. You and I are not. And Solomon just illustrates it so beautifully for us in this book that depresses us because we actually have no control over anything, really. And so calamity is a reality. Evil happens on this earth but it's best not to be paralyzed by that. Understand there's risk. And I think that's what verse four is saying. You cannot change the fact that the tree falls and there it shall lie. You cannot change the fact that the clouds that are full of rain shall empty themselves on the earth. So we must deal with it. We must not be textbook overthinkers. Verse four, he who observes the wind will not sow. And he who regards the clouds will not reap. And the image seems to highlight that sometimes we want everything to be ideal before we do anything. Now, brethren, I'm not saying we're stupid. I'm not saying we make dumb decisions, but sometimes we can be so paralyzed by risk that we don't do anything at all, right? Newsflash, there's bad things in this world that we have to deal with. There's risk in this world that we have to deal with. Moving to another country, deciding what school one goes to, is a great risk. And so the image with the sowing and the reaping seems to be the farmer wants to wait for a better time. And so Gill says, uh, uh, talking about uh, uncertain signs of weather, which is the wind and the clouds, and if a man gives heed to those uncertain things and puts off his sowing from time to time, for the sake of better weather, as he may never sow, so it is impossible that he should reap. If he doesn't do it, he's not going to get anything. He's not going to get his crop at all. And if he sows, and when his grain is ripe and forbears to reap because of the clouds, lest his grain should be wet, may never reap at all. There's risk. Hard work is, is risky. Enterprise is risky. Seafaring requires risk. But again, that shouldn't be something that paralyzes the people of God in this world. Just like how, to, how a tree falls where it lies, there is going to be risk in this world. We forget that. I feel like the past two years, we forgot that very thing, that there's a thousand ways to die in this world. Sorry to put it that way. Isn't it a marvel that we're still alive? I mean, it's a, you know, a gift and providence of God that we are still living when there are so many ways to die in this world. Even when it comes to jobs that we engage in, seafaring would have been risky, right? There's storms. They can't control the wind and the waves. A ship might sink. A crew member might die. 
There might be pirates who come and steal their loot. It's a risky thing. Crew members may die. Getting in our car, brethren. Get in our cars, brethren. Getting in our cars day by day is a risk, is it not? The brakes could, grow, could go. Some other person could hit us along the way. I mean, risk. We, you know, all of life, we assess the risk and we make decisions based on that risk. Other things in life as well. For me, peanuts. Peanuts, I'm allergic to peanuts. So every time going to look at a treat, I could die by eating that very treat. And life is filled with risk. Marriage. When someone gets married, that could be risky. That person might hurt you. That person might be mean to you. That person might do an awful thing to you. Life is full of risk. Shaving. You might cut yourself. Life is full of risk. Or if you're like me, you miss a spot and then you have to shave the whole thing because you messed up one spot that I actually did when we first started the church. Uh, That was the last time I was clean shaven in that time. But there's full of risk. Even with marriage too, everyone's afraid of rejection these days, right? Nobody's willing to put themselves out there. You know, when I was growing up, it was just, hey, sweetheart, you want to go steady? And if she said no, okay, okay, you deal with it and you move on. Everyone's just afraid to be told no these days. If you, you know, we need to be reminded that there's risk. And if people say no, well, that's just life. And even when it comes to our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, is there not risk with that as well? Does Christ not call us to count the cost? We might lose friends. We might lose family member members. We might die for the faith. But remember, brethren, that believing on Christ, the risks and the, or the benefits far outweigh the risks, do they not? Believing in him, having life in him, dying in him, in him we have everlasting life. But life, even for God's people, is still filled with much risk. And I do believe as Solomon is engaging in his quest, in his observation, he does have covenant, his covenant God in view. So there is much risk and much calamity is there not a time for everything under the sun ecclesiastes chapter three and so brethren the application is be be prepared for risks in this world it's dangerous and it's hard and sometimes those risks can be paralyzing and perhaps for young people one paralyzing thing is what they're going to do for the rest of their life just deciding what's going to happen and worried about that. They get paralyzed. They don't know what to do. Well, somebody, what schools should they go to? How much does school cost? What if I fail? What if something doesn't happen? Well, apply. Let's start with that for a second. Decide what career you want and move. You know, it really is. Sometimes we overthink things sometimes, dear brother. And God is, ple- uh, and you know, if we, you know, seek to do his will, seek to honor him, commit his, our ways unto him, he is pleased to lead us. But it doesn't mean we just sit back and do nothing, right? It doesn't mean we just sit back and let go and let God. You know, God gave us minds. God gave us brains. And it's okay to pick up or get on the computer or pick up a phone and figure out what to do. Because if we wait too long, the time may pass. Bridges says tomorrow will be more favorable. The storm will be over and our business will be done with less hazard. So says the trifler in his own delusion. There is toil. There are risks. God has told us that. We must be prepared for that. 
in this world in which we live. So be prepared for risks. And as you prepare for risks, don't be lazy. I mean, that's a command of God. That's the eighth commandment. Again, as God's people, as redeemed in him, we are called to work hard, dear brethren. We're called to work hard in our jobs and to work hard in the things of God. When it came to my own personal conversion, and when it came to an evidence of my salvation, I did a lot of terrible things before I was converted, by the way, and God redeemed me and saved me, and there were changes in those terrible things. But one of those terrible things was laziness. I never studied in grade 12. I never showed up to my last few shifts at Sport Check. I was very close to being fired as my job as an electrician. My, uh, the, the, my boss told me that. You were on thin ice there, Michael. And then God saved me. God changed me. One evidence was hard work was something that I had to do. Some hard work was something that was important to work hard as if unto the Lord God most high. And thankfully, uh, certainly there are still struggles with diligence, but uh, God instilled that in me. So laziness is not a good thing. I don't even know how I passed, to be honest with you, in school. I, like, I did not study at all. Um, God is uh, of mercy before I was converted in that way. So we ought to be diligent, brethren, diligent in work, diligent in the things of God, uh, even First Timothy four, he tells the tell, or Paul tells Timothy to be diligent. Basically, is what he's saying to them: set your mind on these things. You know, uh, uh, be diligent to observe these things. And Ephesians four, I mean Ephesians four, Thessalonians, they all talk about the idlers, the ones who have nothing else to do, and they all say, work hard, don't be a busybody, work hard. Work hard is important in this world. We should never grow weary in doing good. Even in marriage, brethren, marriage is hard work, isn't it? Raising children is hard work, isn't it? People don't just fall into a marriage and everything's great and everything's wonderful because they found the one. Hard work is involved when it comes or ought to be involved when it comes to marriage. And so certainly even perhaps people do work hard. And I know there's things that happen in marriage. I know there's things that happen in work. I know there's still sins. I get that. But God calls us to be diligent in all things in this world. But uh, risk should not stop us from being uh, from working hard. So that's the risk of diligence. Let's then look secondly at the comfort of diligence in verses five and six. And notice, you don't know anything. Verse five. And as you do not know what is the way of the wind or how the bones grow in the womb. I don't know the way the wind blows. We really don't. I used to do landscaping. I do a lot of blowing the leaves and then the wind would change and you're fighting against the wind. And you're like, can you just blow the other way today? And I couldn't control any of that. We don't know which way the wind blows. And even too, when it comes to a baby growing in the womb, we sort of get it, but do we really understand? Do we really understand how bones grow inside a womb? Do we really get that? No, we don't. So... As you do not know what is the way of the wind or how the bones grow in them. See, we know nothing in this world. So you do not know the works of God who makes everything. You are not the creator. You are not the sustainer of this world. God is. 
And how often has the preacher re reminded us of that? In chapter 3, verses 12 through 15, he says, I know, well, verse 14, whatever God does, it shall be forever. Nothing can be added to it or nothing taken from it. God does it that men should fear before him. That which is, has already been. And what is to be, has already been. And then, excuse me, in chapter 7, 13, he says, Consider the work of God, for who can make straight what he has made crooked? In the day of prosperity, be joyful. But in the day of adversity, consider. Surely God has appointed the one as well as the other so that man can find out nothing that will come after him. Then again, in 8.16, he says, When I applied my heart to know wisdom and to see the business that is done on the earth, even though one sees no sleep or night, then I saw all the works of God, that a man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. For though man labors to discover it, yet he will not find it. Moreover, though a wise man attempts to know it, he will not be able to find it. We don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. We don't know what's going to happen with our jobs. We don't know what is going to happen in the next 45 seconds, although I have some idea what might happen in the next 45 seconds. But we really don't know the future, do we? We like to think we do, but we really don't know what will happen or come upon us. We cannot know the works of God who makes everything and thankfully we have a god we can trust in because let's be honest all of life is trust in a lot of ways isn't it all of life is trusting in god i don't think again using the marriage illustration people are walking down the aisle in 10 years this is going to happen to my husband in 10 years this is going to happen to my wife in 15 years you don't know what's going to happen right we cannot know the works of God from beginning to the end. Even with kids, kids have all these ideas of what they want to be. Their dreams change. Or they just find out they're not as good as their mama told them at what they wanted to be, right? I wanted to be a hockey player. But guess who never worked hard during the summer like all of my peers did? So I did not make the NHL. Instead, I'm here with you guys today, which is far better than playing in the NHL. So I'm happy to be with you all here today. But we don't know the works of God from beginning to the end. And that's also true with salvation. Now, as you heard verse 5, I don't think there's a verbal parallel, but certainly a conceptual parallel uh, with John chapter 3. John chapter 3. Nicodemus comes to Jesus by night. You know, we, if we were to consider a Pharisee coming to Jesus and being saved, you would have said, I don't know the work of God from beginning to the end. But here comes Nicodemus talking to Jesus by night, and Jesus is speaking about the new birth. And he says, most assuredly, I say to you, verse 3, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus answered, most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. 
Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but cannot tell where it comes from and where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. You see, when it comes to God saving his elect, we do not know who he's going to call. That's why he calls his people to proclaim the gospel, that he might draw his elect in. So Reformed people are not against evangelism. But we understand we are not the ones bringing the salvation. God is. God just uses mouthpieces. God just uses his word. But it's really God as the one who brings that salvation. And if we believe on Christ, yes, there's assurances we can have in him most assuredly. But we see that so redemption really is the work of God and not the work of of man. The wind blows where it wishes, but we do not know where it goes. Even so are all those born of the spirit. When you consider that, dear brethren, do you ever ask yourself, why am I saved and not somebody else? Why did he save me and not somebody else? That's an important question to ask, and it highlights that it's God's grace and sovereign plan to save his people from their sins. In any case, back to Ecclesiastes chapter 11. We do not know the works of God who makes everything. So how then shall we live? Verse six, be diligent. In the morning, sow your seed, and in the evening, do not withhold your hand. For you do not know which will prosper, either this or that, or whether both alike will be good. I find the preacher gives us some good common sense here you don't know what life's going to hold work hard there you go there's god's big wonderful plan for your life and whatever you're pursuing whatever that is in a good way whether you're a student whether you have a job whether you're a, a business owner work hard you don't know what the next day is going to hold but we just simply do the next thing in the morning get up be diligent so your See, don't be paralyzed with fear, but work hard. There's an uncertainty of God's plan. How then shall we live? Work hard. There's not much we can do. So work hard. So go in the morning, sow your seed, and then in the evening, do not withhold your hand. What's interesting too is the language of sowing your seed and not withholding your hand carries the idea of obviously working hard. But there is a New Testament way of referring to this. You know what it's called? What the phrase is? Redeeming the time. We see this in Ephesians 5 and Colossians chapter 4, and especially in Ephesians 5. We see there how we walk in love and light and wisdom. And we will get to Colossians 4 at some point in our morning service. But in Ephesians chapter 5. See, then you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time because the days are evil. We live in a perilous, sin-filled, fallen world. We only have so long in this vain life in which we live. And so time is precious. Brethren, time is something that we can never, ever get back. I remember Elizabeth Elliot was talking about her father who hated being late. And what she said, her father said was the reason he hated being late 
is because you take something from someone they can never get back. Their time. You've agreed to a time. You've agreed to meet with them. That is something that can never get back. And for him, he had to take the train. And so if they were late to breakfast, he couldn't take the train and so on and so forth, couldn't get to work, so on and so, so forth. Time is a precious gift. Time is a precious thing. Now, obviously, if we're late, there's mercy and forgiveness in the Lord Jesus Christ. But that's interesting, isn't it? And also as well, I don't think it's just referring to that when he talks about redeeming the time. What he's highlighting is we make the most of the time that we have. Not saying you can't relax, not saying you can't have a time of vacation, but we ought to be diligent in whatever God calls us to do. Henry says, talking about um, Ephesians 5, but good application for Ecclesiastes, he says, it is a metaphor taken from merchants and traders who diligently observe and improve the seasons for merchandise and trade. It is a great part of Christian wisdom to redeem the time. Good Christians must be good husbands of their time and take care to improve it to the best of purposes by watching against temptations, by doing good while it is in the power of their hands, and by filling it up with proper employment. One special preservative from sin. That's good common sense. If we are so tired from our jobs, if we're so well worn down from our jobs, we're not going to have any energy to sin. Idleness is of the devil. Idleness is not good for man. Idleness is a one-way ticket to engaging in sin. He goes on to say they should make the best use they can of the present seasons of grace. Our time is a talent given us by God for some good end. And it is misspent and lost when it is not employed according to his design. If we have lost our time heretofore, we must endeavor to redeem it by doubling our diligence and doing our duty for the future. Now, brethren, we have these little things called phones. They're time-sucking vortexes. And they're designed to be that way, are they not? I mean, they're designed for you to go, I just looked at it five minutes ago, but I want to pick it up again. I mean, that's the purpose of it. Now, phones can be a good thing, but we don't want to make them bad gods. I understand we get distracted very easily in this world. Even watching kids shows with my dear little daughter, I mean, some of them are like 10-minute segments. They used to be 20 when I was a kid, right? Some of them are like three-minute segments. I mean, you know, we're just, you know, training our children. So I'm like, no, we got we to gotta watch longer shows if we're going to watch something to have some sort of attention span. We don't watch a lot of TV, by the way, but just I just want to throw that out there. Not that you need to know that, but... But we're losing our ability to think and to focus. I mean, why is it too in Christian circles? People begin to shut off after 25 minutes into a sermon, 30 minutes into a sermon, 15 minutes into a sermon. We need to be able to sit and listen and focus and use the times that God has given to us. Now, again, there's mercy and forgiveness in Christ for our failures in this. We ought to redeem, redeem the time as best we can. And the Puritans were very good at that very thing. Certainly, though, as Henry says, obviously working hard in our jobs, you know, working hard in our families, making sure we're diligent in our prayers and Bible reading. I mean, that fills the day, right? You know, families caring for them, that all requires hard work. I mean, that's why we don't have a thousand other things, by the way, in our church, because that takes up a lot of time. And that's where our time should be. So in the morning, 
but there's also the, uh, the blessing too we ought to enjoy. In the evening, do not withhold your hand. I mean, the preacher often has talked about the enjoyment we can have in this world, and that's one of the blessings of redeeming the time to be able to plan those times of blessing. Whatever our portion is, as the preacher has said, it is okay to enjoy it. It's a gift of God, not saying we sin with it, but if God has given us good things, we ought to praise him and thank him for it and enjoy those very things. And the reason we must be diligent the reason we can enjoy is verse six at the end there. For you do not know that repeated refrain. You do not know which will prosper. Either this or that or the both alike will be good. There is a vanity there, isn't there? Work hard, but you don't really know if you'll succeed or not. <laughs> but you still must work hard but you don't know the outcome. Work hard. And so does money really answer everything then? Bartholomew says one can diversify, trade abroad, work hard, but still one has no control over what the future might bring. Wealth simply will not do as the answer to everything. And the New Testament also speaks along these lines. Again, having money isn't bad, Having nice things aren't bad, but the pursuit of them as our ultimate goal is. When money becomes an idol, that is wrong. And that's why we see Paul say in 1 Timothy 6, godliness with contentment is great gain. That should be above all godliness and happiness with the life that God has given to us. But Jesus also says in Matthew 6, you cannot serve God and money. And so if God gives you money, ask him to give you the requisite generosity to go with that growth in money. If God gives you money, ask him to give you that detachment from it that should you lose it all, you still know where your ultimate inheritance lies. And if he gives you money, praise him for it. Thank him for it. Honor him for it. And if he doesn't, thank him and praise him for what he has given you in this world in which we live. Because there are many comforts about hard work. And we'll close with three lines of application this evening. We have comforts in this unknown life, this risky life in which we live. We do have the comfort of hard work. Jesus' advice of don't worry about tomorrow for today has its problems is good common sense, is it not? Because each day has its troubles. And so we get up, we thank God we opened our eyes that day, and we ask him to provide for our daily bread and give us the strength to work hard in that day. Colossians 4 highlights we work hard as if unto the Lord. Ephesians 4, we work hard that we might be able to help others, Ephesians 4. In a world where there are myriads of jobs, one must remember, even if we don't like our job, we should still work hard in our job, even if we don't like our job, because we're working hard as if unto the Lord, right? Not saying you can't look for another job, but I'm saying in the job that you have, don't grumble or complain. Honor God, work hard in that job. There's some good common sense there, is there not? You don't know what's going to happen, just work hard. There's comfort in knowing what our task is, hard work. 
There's also comfort in an unknown world in the fact that we have a caring God. There are so many universal problems that we've seen in the book of Ecclesiastes, right? They apply. There is nothing new under the sun. What has been is what has, uh, what, uh, what is has already been and what will be has already been. There's universal problems in this world. And so they're going to happen. They're going to come. There's going to be difficulty. There's going to be calamity. There's going to be sadness, but thankfully God is the one who created this world. He upholds it and he specifically upholds his people. The promise of all things working together for good is a specific promise for the people of God. Whatever you endure in this world, God has a specific purpose for your good. Now, brethren, we might not know the answer to that specific goodness, but there is that promise that God has said, what man means for evil, God does mean for good. And thankfully, we can turn to him in times of anxiety. In fact, I love the language of both Philippians 4 and 1 Peter 5, but Philippians 4, 6, he says, be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. The implication is there is people get anxious. And sometimes we get so anxious, we get arrogance. And this is 1 Peter 5. Arrogance isn't always bragging about how much money you have or bragging about how big you're, how much hair you have or anything like that. Does anybody really brag about their hair? I admit uh, my hair is going, and so I'm a little sensitive about that right now. So uh, one day you will have a lot of shine shining off this uh, this top here. I'm sure the shine from there will shine onto you, so we'll need that uh, cover even more. Uh, but uh, we need to commit those ways unto God, First Peter, First Peter 5. He says in verse 6, Therefore, humble yourselves. Under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time. So it's all in this context of humility, all in the context of considering others better than yourself. What does he say? How do you do this? Verse 7, by casting all your care upon him. The implication is that if we grumble and complain at the life that God has given to us, we're being arrogant. And we're being arrogant by thinking the life that God has given to us uh, is not the one we think would be best for us. We're not submitting to God's guiding providence in that way. And so he says there that he may humble yourselves by casting all your cares. And so rather than grumbling and complaining about that, one way we humble ourselves is confessing, God, I'm struggling God, I have anxiety over this very thing, but you have put me in this place for a specific reason. You cast all your cares upon him. And notice the reason why. For he cares for you. That is only for the people of God. For he cares for you. So whatever enigma you deal with, he cares for you. Cast that upon him. Humble yourselves. He cares for you. So that's a comfort. We have a caring God. And lastly, we have the comfort of lasting treasure. Our life is filled with many unknowns. 
A couple are certain though. We're going to die. That's very certain. But also though we die, we shall live. And we shall live with Christ though we die. Our bodies will, our souls will go to be with him. Even as we await the resurrection, we shall be with him forever. That is what awaits us, dear brethren. In a life full of so much sorrow, Paul does call it a momentary light affliction because it does not compare to the eternal weight of glory that awaits us in Christ. And Jesus says, do not store up treasures on earth, but store up treasures in heaven, for they are what last. Bartholomew says again, with Jesus, Kohelet reminds us that wealth by itself is never secure, ground on which to stand. God and God alone must be at the center of our lives. So brethren, in this unknown, risky life in which we live, remember that Christ is your sure foundation. And whatever comes, trust in him, he will guide you home. Let us pray. Lord, our God, we are thankful that you are, again, our anchor in shifting times. You are our foundation in a world full of much enigma and vanity and perplexity uh, in this world in which we live. Sometimes the wicked prosper and the righteous face adversity. But help us to remember, O God, that you are the one who is the potentate of time. And there is a purpose for everything under heaven. You make everything beautiful in its time, and we cannot find out the work of God from the beginning to the end. So may we confess that. May we know that, O God. May we commit our lives to you. May we commit our futures to you. May we commit our jobs to you. May we commit our family life to you. May we commit our children to you. And may we commit our lives to you day by day. And whatever job you've called us to do, and whatever role you've called us to, May we be diligent in those roles. May we redeem the time. May we manage our time well, that we might uh, uh, glorify you, that we might ponder you, that we might think of you more often. Please forgive us for the times that we do not. Help us, O God, to recognize uh, our feebleness in this world, but we stand upon a solid rock day by day, namely Christ himself. So we ask, O God, you'd give us strength, Give us hard work, prepare our hearts for whatever risk, whatever calamity, whatever unknown may come. But thank you for the certainty that we are in Christ Jesus. So be with us now by your spirit. Give us strength as we go into the world. Give us strength in Christ, we pray in the name of Christ. Amen. We'll close by singing the doxology. If you need the words, they're at the front of the blue Trinity hymnal. Roman numeral XVI. Roman numeral XVI will stand and sing together the doxology.
May the Lord give strength to his people. May the Lord bless his people with peace. Amen.